This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve Him in their neighbor. For whom the words of the Creed reverberate through their daily activity, this is the show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, happy Easter. The Lord is risen. Alleluia, alleluia. Um, this is the time of celebration as we focus on and and meditate on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and come to really try and wrestle with what that means, what are the implications for his resurrection in uh, in our daily life. When I was younger, um, I, uh, I was around communities of faith that evangelized in such a way with their testimonies as to make it seem that once you became a Christian— all of your problems would go away, right? If you, here was my life before, see how awful it was. Now here's my life with Jesus, see how amazing it is. All you have, Jesus is now kind of a means to a happier life. All I have to do is follow Jesus and all of all of these difficulties melt away into glorious bliss. Um, there, and to a certain extent, there is an experience of faith that does bring great joy. Uh, however, I've seen more than one person become a little bit uh, disenfranchised by by that kind of evangelization because what happens when they convert to the faith under the promise of everything just suddenly going well and the birds singing and the sun shining and, and the the promise that they'll never have a problem again because of their relationship with Jesus and then all of a sudden those problems don't go away. Sometimes, in some cases, those problems actually feel even bigger. And so they they are left to wonder, well, does God just not do it for me, or was this whole thing a sham? Now, see, when Jesus talked to his apostles about this, he said, uh, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. And he kind of laid out what some of those troubles would be. He said, they're going to drag you before the courts, and they're going to cast you out of the, the religious synagogues, and they're going to do all of these things to you, which would seem like the the end of your cultural and societal life, right? You're going to be an outcast for me. But hey, that's that's a good thing. Take heart, I've overcome the world. You see, he didn't promise that his resurrection would bring an end to all our difficulties. What he promised is, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, right? He, he promised his presence, and his presence is enough. He says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, right? So, and so there is a, a promise of change and of hope and of great comfort but it isn't necessarily just that everything is going to go perfectly well according to our plans. And so I wanted to focus on that a little bit today. Last week, we talked about recognizing Christ in the Eucharist and with these meditations after Holy Communion. And I want to kind of continue a little bit on that path uh, by rewinding us just a little bit. Um, uh, as we talk about meditations after Holy Communion, one of the things that pops into my mind is Christ being recognized in the Eucharist? And when I think of that, of course, I, in, in light of the resurrection, I think of the, the two, um, two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection, right? They are going back home, and they are disheartened. 
Now, we know the end of the story. The end of the story is they convince Jesus to come in and have dinner with them. They don't recognize that it's him, and he blesses the the meal. And as he does, he blesses the bread, and in the breaking of the bread, they recognize him as Christ, and then he disappears from their sight. Well, I want to rewind just a little bit, because we find ourselves often in the place of those apostles, those disciples on the road to Emmaus. They're on the way home, and they are looking at the world around them, and they're looking at the events that have taken place, and they're trying to understand them and contextualize them, and they are beaten down, disheartened. And along comes Jesus kind of pretending to not be who he is and not really revealing himself to them, and he feigns a little bit of ignorance. And he says, oh, what are, you, what are you talking about there? And they said, well, all of the events that have happened, what events are those? Are you the only person who, has, basically, where are you from? What rock have you been hiding under? And uh, and he then goes on and opens the scriptures to them and says, didn't you see that this was how it had to be? And then uh, today, uh, uh, well, no, tomorrow's reading in Mass, the gospel happens immediately after that. The, they recognize him in the breaking of the bread, and then we see that they run back to tell the other, uh, other disciples. And here in the Gospel of Luke, it says, The two disciples recounted what had taken place on the way and how Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And while they were still speaking about this, he stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and terrified, and they thought they were seeing a ghost. And then he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do you question in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. And as he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still incredulous with for joy, and were amazed, he asked them, have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of baked fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. And he said, these are the words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. And he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And that goes on from there. Why do I bring this up today? Um, <clears throat> because we go through difficulty and heartache and and suffering that we don't understand. And we look at it and we say, God has abandoned us and we are all alone. And even if we acknowledge in our minds, oh, well, yeah, you know, God is good and God is on his throne, we, we have a really hard time contextualizing the world that we see around us uh, and understanding it in light of of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like these apostles did, just like these disciples did all the way at the very beginning. This is not a new problem for us. And so how then do we go about recognizing Christ in the breaking of the bread? How do we go about recognizing Christ's presence, not only in the bread, but in the suffering that we encounter, in the difficulty we see around our world, whether that be personal difficulty, uh, whether that be the, the, this global pandemic that continues and rages on, whatever the case may be, how do we recognize Christ 
in the midst of those situations, in that suffering? Do we find ourselves like the disciples, huddled in an upper room with the doors locked for the fear that those things we are afraid of can break in from the outside and make our lives even harder? And if so, what would it take for us to turn our eyes to Jesus and see him entering in and appearing in the middle of our locked room? Do we hide deeper or do we turn astonished and amazed and listen for what it is that he might say to us? Because I I guarantee that he'll say to us what he said to the apostles, peace be with you. Why are you afraid? And then if we're willing, if we'll take the time, he'll open to us his heart and he'll show us the things that have happened and why they happened in the way that they did and where he is and has been in the middle of that storm that we're encountering. All of this is coming together as I think about last year, right after the pandemic started, Pope Francis gave an extraordinary blessing from the city to the world, from the city of Rome to all of us in the world. It's called an Urbi et Orbi. And these happen typically twice a year. But this was an extraordinary one uh, in the sense that it was outside of the ordinary, right? It was an extra one because of the needs of the world at that specific time. And so on March 27th and 2020, shortly after all the lockdowns, as the world was trying to come to terms with what was going on, as the death count was rising in Italy where Pope Francis was, he called this extraordinary Orbi et Orbi. And this was really, I felt almost more invested in this one um, just because we were all in the same boat together. And so I, I watched this as it happened and just was taken by the beauty of it. And I, I was thrilled to learn that Ave Maria Press has put together a, a recounting of that night, um, both with the beautiful imagery with some explanation of kind of what was going on in various parts. If you weren't aware of what was happening at, there's kind of like the, the Easter eggs. Haha. <laughs> See, I brought an Easter uh, of, of that night and explain it to us. And then there's the prayers and the homilies and the, the everything else that's there for us to enter back into whether or not we're recounting or continuing to live in, in this storm of the pandemic or whether we have other storms that we need to hear the words of Christ to his apostles saying, peace be with you. Why are you so afraid? So the book is called Christ in the Storm, An Extraordinary Blessing for a Suffering World. It was put together by Jamie Stewart Wolf, who we've had on the show before. Uh, she was also the one responsible for that beautiful Pope John Paul II book, Teachings for an Unbelieving World. Uh, and we're glad to have her back on the show today to talk over this book and the reasons for it and a little bit of her encounter and experience with this extraordinary event. One small disclaimer before we start this conversation. I had the opportunity to talk with Jamie earlier this week uh, by Zoom, um, but it so happened that the same day that we had scheduled to have this conversation was also the same day that the military base nearby her also scheduled to have a number of training flights and so as as you listen to the conversation, if every once in a while you hear a very loud rumbling, 
that that's the airplanes. There's no storm uh, specifically. It's just airplanes flying over. So, Jamie, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time to be with us. Thank you for bringing us this book. The night itself was such a meaningful thing. So I'm, I'm curious, um, what was your experience of that blessing? And what was the story of this book coming into production? Sure. So it came about sitting on my couch in the family room, um, watching this event unfold live on television, as so many millions of people around the world did. And um, so as we were sitting there, you know, a couple family members, my mom, my husband, I think an adult child, you know, college student, uh, kind of in the room in and out. And we're sitting there watching this and I'm watching how, you know, whoever created this prayer service, the unsung hero, yeah, okay? The liturgist. Put, yes, yes. Uh, for once, we can applaud a liturgist, right? You know, <laughs> uh, put it together. We don't canonize many of them, uh, but anyway, uh, who put this all together uh, was just completely led by the Holy Spirit. It was just, it was not only the right thing to do at this moment of history, right? Which is now a year ago, uh, March 27th, 2020 is when this occurred, um, you know, at the end of Lent, right? Just before Palm Sunday. Um, and it, it ushered in what would we didn't know at the time would be a year-long Lenten experience, right? Yeah. Of, of fasting and of praying and of almsgiving, you know, uh, those three things we've been doing a lot of for the past year and more. And, um, but it's not just for this moment. It's for every moment that is like this. It's for every moment of our own individual lives. It doesn't have to be a world pandemic, right? To need Christ's presence in the storm and to know that he's there. And it can be any storm. And yet this particular event just encapsulated in a one hour frame, time frame what it means to be Catholic, what it looks like to pray as a Catholic, what we believe, what we reach for, where we find hope. And uh, that's what the Holy Father and, and uh, you know, that, that uh, unsung hero liturgist gave us a year ago that day, something we can unpack for a lifetime, something we can return to whenever we feel caught in the storm and we think the Lord is asleep. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know uh, there, there are a number of different, uh, and we talked about this, I think last week on the show, uh, the church gives us these opportunities to enter into a season that we're not personally feeling, right? So uh, we could be having the best year ever and the church invites us into Lent. Uh, we could be having the, the worst year ever and uh, the, the church invites us into Easter, into the season of feasting and says, here's something to help you um, feel the experience of the rest of the church and to feel a part of something else. Uh, even with all of those, uh, even with all of the, the stations of the cross or the, the whatever other um, really deeply meditative uh, liturgies that are available to us, the the solitariness of Pope Francis in this empty square yes. um, allowed us, I think, to, to see that the, the connection between praying alone and praying with the whole church. Here he is praying all by himself, and he still belongs and is connected, and, and we feel connected to him in a way that I think might, at least for me, help me see how my solitary prayer 
can also be united to that of the whole church. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, you know, prayer, the prayer of the liturgy of the hours is something that, you know, all priests and deacons or whatever are bound mm-hmm. to, many religious are bound to as well. And it's not their personal prayer. Right. You know, it's the prayer of the whole church. And so that's that's what this moment was, the prayer of the whole church. But it was also a prayer for the whole world. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, the, the colonnade at, at St. Peter's reaches out, uh, you know, like embracing arms, right? And it welcomes everyone, even when the square is empty. Yeah. Even when there's no one there, the arms are still reaching out. And that's uh, that's who the church is. That's who the church is in the world. The church is not uh, of the world, but we're certainly in it. And uh, we're also for it, mm-hmm. right? We're also like the Son of God who didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. The church offers blessing. The church offers um, instruction. The church offers hope and healing. That's what the church offered. It was, I thought, really the day was a portrait of the church at her very best. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I, I look at this and um, and see another thing here as well, that we often we often would expect the liturgies of the church to be, you know, populated by the church and there's these big events and we see everybody gathered together and, and some might say, well, it's all for the, the pomp and the show and this, the circumstance and all you've got the, you've got the people together. Of course, you're going to do this big thing Um, here. And you have in the, in the beginning of this book as well, from one of my uh, favorite people, uh, Dr. Timothy O'Malley talking about how, Pope Francis from the very beginning talked about getting back to the basics of evangelization. And in terms of evangelization with this, of course, this is a blessing for the whole world as every Urbi et Orbi is. Um, and, and I felt that maybe more keenly here because the whole world in this specific time was experiencing the same thing and the same fear and the same isolation and the same uncertainty uh, in a way that I is is at least in our age unprecedented because this truly is something that affects the whole world. Um, here was something that wasn't for anybody there, right? It wasn't for the pilgrims. It wasn't for uh, it wasn't for the people who were able to travel there. Every you know the the Urbi at Orbi has comes with a, a a blessing attached to it and a plenary indulgence for those who participate and it, yeah it 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 applies to those who are able to participate in it in whatever medium is available mm-hmm. to them um but i've always felt like well yeah of course it is but really it's for those people who are there R- really it's more for the the people who are able to gather or the pilgrims and who, who can experience it live uh this one really brought home the fact this was not for anyone that was present it was for all of us Correct. And, you know, that's what prayer is, right? Prayer doesn't just take place in history. It takes place in eternity. Mm-hmm. So those things that are that take place in eternity are for all of us always. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's it's accessible to all of us always. And that's, that's why I really wanted to put this together in a way that you could hand to someone, you know, the way that you could pick up and return to in prayer in a way that you could hand to someone, this is what Catholic prayer is. This is what our faith does in a moment of crisis. This is where, you know, what we're taught and what we're, what we lean into when we need God and when we know we need God, right? We need something bigger than ourselves. And this is 
how we approach that. And um, the beautiful thing that, you know, again, back to that secret hero, that, you know, unsung hero liturgist, right? So there's a decision that was made at some point, not uh, it when it was about the blessing. There's an apostolic blessing that usually a papal apostolic blessing that usually goes along with all these Irby at Orbeez. And the Irby at Orbeez is usually done on Christmas Mm -hmm. and Easter and on the balcony when a new pope is elected. Those are the three times we see them. Now, there have been in history more times, and they kind of shuttled it around the the city, uh, you know, different churches, different solemnities. They used to have a lot more of them. But uh, that's what we have now in in, in our times as a steady diet of Irby at Orbeez. We can count on it twice a year. And, uh, you know, if we have a new pope, we'll get it from him. So there's an apostolic blessing that goes with the Irby at Orbe, and it's uh, it's usually, you know, the uh, form is usually a particular thing attached to the papacy, to the authority of the Pope as the successor of St. Peter, that he's elected to be the successor of the Prince of the Apostles. He's the magisterium in person, right? Mm-hmm. So he's the teaching authority of the church. But whoever put this together, you know, maybe it was Pope Francis himself. Yeah. They decided not to use that form of the papal blessing. It's the highest form of papal blessing. They decided not to use it, but instead to bless the world with the Eucharistic presence of Jesus in benediction. And I I, I just really think that was probably the most powerful decision made in uh, in how they put this whole uh, moment of prayer is what they called it, uh, you know, together, that it's the Holy Father and the church bringing Christ into the situation. Not that I can stand there with my own authority, you know, or that the Holy Father could stand there with his own authority and have much to say. And yes, it's a valid blessing. And you know, all the same things are attached to it. But here with benediction, here with a little bit of adoration, um, you know, a time of adoration and a, and a beautiful litany composed for the occasion, you know, asking the, the uh, you know, the, the action of God in this terrible pandemic um, in a way that was still universal, yeah. in a way that was still whatever storm you're suffering, whatever difficulty you're facing, that's Christ in the storm. He's here with us. He's He's there, and he's blessing us. He's not judging us, you know. I mean, he judges us too, but he blesses us. He comes into the world to save it, not to condemn it. And this is what the church uh, was bringing forth a year ago, you know, and and is always bringing forth, right? We sometimes lose sight of that, but this was a very visible moment of the church bringing blessing, healing, and Jesus into the world. You know, I— um. This is an interesting thing. I didn't really make that connection that he didn't do the normal papal blessing. I did catch the the blessing of the Eucharist. But one of the things that that highlights is that he's acknowledging this is a blessing higher than my own blessing. Right. And this is also the blessing that we receive when we go to benediction of the Blessed Sacrament from our priest, from our local right. priest. Um, same uh, Jesus. Same Jesus, <laughs> same presence. Uh, and and I think of some other iconic uh, similar things, like when the um, the Cathedral of uh, Notre Dame was burning down in yes. in uh, in Paris. The priest rescued the Eucharist and gave benediction to the building uh, mm-hmm. as he was leaving it. Christ's presence was invoked in that 
setting in a way that also made national news and and put the focus on on Christ's presence. All of these are, I think, opportunities for us to to bear witness to, to acknowledge, and to uh, to proclaim Christ's presence in the midst of of tragedy. Not just you know the celebratory oh rah rah everything's going to be okay if you have Jesus, but to say Jesus is here with us in the boat. Right, and that's and that's I think why we also had then this miraculous crucifix brought in right mm-hmm. you know, this this crucifix with a really interesting history of being processed through the city of Rome during plague, actually. Uh, And the names of the popes who have processed it uh, inscribed on the back of it. How interesting is that, right? And the last one was John Paul II uh, in the year 2000. Uh, But that we would have these, these images, not that we're praying to an image, but that the image draws us to what that image signifies, right? So it draws us to the crucified Christ, the Christ who shares our suffering and doesn't dismiss it. The Christ who uh, suffers for us and with us. You know, we, we know the whole suffering for us part, but we sometimes forget the suffering with us part. Yeah. And that Jesus is with us in all suffering. And that sometimes, sometimes suffering is a vehicle of grace, you know, suffering can bring us closer to him, can bring us closer to him in a way that, that uh, you know, happy days just don't do. Yeah. Um, it brings us to our knees. It brings us to our, our, our spiritual poverty, our, our knowledge that we do, in fact, need God. And yet the church gives us the Eucharistic presence of Christ, gives us the Holy Father as a t- teaching authority, gives us Mary as a mother. You know, we had the, the icon from uh, Maria Maggiore, right, you know, St. Mary Major. Basilica uh, brought as well. And, you know, that also has a long history and legends attached to it, uh, that it was marched through the city of Rome, uh, you know, in a, in a time of, of plague and illness, but also that, you know, perhaps the Apostle Luke, the evangelist, uh, you know, painted it himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's even a legend that it was painted on a table that, you know, on the tabletop that Jesus had built, uh, you know, himself. So it's, all of these things link us and set us in history, but they also access for us eternity. That's what prayer does, right? That's what good prayer does. It's a crossroad. It's, it's, it's that link, that door, that threshold between history and eternity. And we can have that anytime we pray. Yeah. This is just one way that the church brought us to kind of incorporate all that she offers, forgiveness of sins and, you know, with a, with a plenary indulgence uh, to, to um, you know, to bring us to Jesus in the Eucharist, to bring us to the, to the Word of God and the Scriptures. You know, we have that reading about, uh, that gospel reading about Jesus asleep in the boat. And we often feel that way ourselves. We feel that Christ somehow is asleep in the middle of our storm, but this book helps us to see his presence even in our darkest experiences. The book is Christ in the Storm, an Extraordinary Blessing for a Suffering World, available right now on Ave Maria Press. We're going to continue this conversation with Jamie Stewart Wolf right after this break. Join us over on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily lives. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Jamie Stewart Wolf. She uh, she is bringing us this book, Christ in the Storm, uh, of the the extraordinary Urbi et Orbi uh, that was prayed by Pope Francis on March 27th. You may have seen it, where Pope Francis enters into this completely empty, darkened square, standing alone as this lit figure, and bringing Christ to us in the midst of this address. He does the homily. He does a couple of other specific prayers in specific places. And and then there's the benediction. Well, there's adoration and benediction of the Blessed Sacrament. As Christ is brought out into the square, and all of us, wherever we are around the world as we participate in this, we're blessed by the presence of Christ right there at the very beginning of all of this pandemic. And who would have thought uh, when we first heard those words on television uh, that there was that there was a something that here we would be over a year later, still uncertain where that would take us and where uh, the you know we've got the the light at the end of the tunnel, but but still there's some uncertainty about how long this pandemic will hold on. And yet, as from the point of of this prayer, there was a different, I don't know, a different sensibility, at least in me, of um, really kind of holding on to to Christ in that and and not being shaken by the uncertainty. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Um, that this stands kind of as an iconic day and as a as a kind of a hinge point. To say, here is where perceptions changed. Here is where I was reminded, hey, in the midst of all of this, our Catholic faith has something to say about how we endure uncertainty and how we endure uh, difficulty. So, Jamie, th- I, again, I, I really appreciate um, all that you've put together here, specifically in that this is not just a recounting or it's not just a... Um, okay, here's the homily, and you can read it and enjoy it and move on. But th- there's some just absolutely beautiful pictures in here, reminders of the day. And then you actually have the liturgy printed in here, both in the Latin and the English, so that you can participate in the prayers and understand them as you go through this at your own pace at home. Right. So it's it's meant to unpack what was really presented in that hour. Because as you sat there, you know, you didn't necessarily know that what they were chanting was the subtulum presidium, mm-hmm. you know, which is the oldest Marian prayer we have. You know, it's on a papyrus um, from like the third century uh, found in Egypt. It's like the oldest, the very oldest prayer to the Virgin Mary. And they were chanting that. But if you didn't know that, then you didn't know that. You right. know? <laughs> so, uh, and there were so many, there were so many things like that. Uh, that we were asking God for mercy, that we were, um, you know, that we were praying in a way that is just ancient, but always fresh and new as we, uh, you know, as we deepen our faith and our understanding of, of our tradition, because we have, we have the scriptures, we have the Holy Father, we have a teaching authority, you know, we have a, a visible church, we have the Eucharist, we have Mary, we have the cross, we have forgiveness, we have intercessory prayer. We have adoration. What is it we don't have? Yeah. And that's how we find hope. That's how we find hope. You know, um, we often think of 
evangelization as being uh, really closely tied to apologetics. Like if I could just answer all of your intellectual objections, then then of course you would rationally come to a place where you completely agree with me and, and all would be well. Um, but evangelization, first and foremost, is an invitation to someone into mystery. Correct. And there's an importance uh, that apologetics plays, but it, it's never a, a replacement for evangelization. And Dr. Timothy O'Malley in the introduction talks a little bit about um, the the new evangelization and evangelization in this very Pope Francis way to help us see this event as evangelization, which it certainly yeah. is because it's an invitation into mystery. There's some uncertainty, some why did they do that kind of things that pull you deeper into the mystery. Right. But beyond that, you have created this book in such a way that it itself is an opportunity for evangelization because Absolutely. it's, uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that could easily be a coffee table book, right? The, the pictures and the content is so beautiful that you could make it that massive size. Um, but the size that you have it here, uh, mm-hmm. looks like maybe about five by seven, maybe a little bit bigger. It is yep, five by seven. perfect to, to pass off to someone. Hey, right. I've got this it's, thing here. Why, why don't take it a, right. Carry it around, you know, and, and hand it to somebody who's suffering, hand it to somebody who is facing a difficulty in their lives. It doesn't have to be the pandemic. Yeah. You know, it was never meant uh, I never uh, conceived of this book as a you know souvenir of the of the global pandemic. I mean, who wants that? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, nobody wants that. Uh, but what we ought to want, and what I think we need, right, is a pattern of prayer and of hope for when things are difficult. A pattern of faith and some guidance in how do we access the depths of our faith. And that's what this is meant to do. It's meant to show whoever's curious, you know, who is ever curious about this. This is a worldwide event. Many millions of people watched it, people who are not Catholic at all, uh, who have questions Mm -hmm. and who say, what is that they're doing and why? Um, That's what this book is about. It gives a little background for each segment of what happened that day as a way of unpacking the essentials of Catholic faith and practice. And, you know, we are, right, Lex Credendi, Credendi, right? Right. The law of of prayer is the law of belief. If you want to know what the church believes, watch how she prays. Mm -hmm. That's what this is. It's an invitation to say, hmm, is there something here that I'm missing in my life? And is there something here that maybe I have in my life, but I can go deeper in, in my life? There's something here that's beyond me, something larger, something greater, something mystical, someone in whom I can trust. You know, uh, growing up in the Protestant tradition, a lot of value, and, and, and specifically in the Protestant and slightly charismatic tradition, a lot of value is placed on extemporaneous prayer. Right. I'm going, I'm going to pray whatever's on the top of my head and whatever's in the top of my mind and to the exclusion of any other kind of prayer. Um, one of the values that I, I have just really latched onto in Catholicism and, and this book, I think highlights it is there are times specifically in suffering 
where you don't have words. Yes. And, and so th- being able to join all of my emotion and experience mm-hmm. to these beautifully crafted, thoughtfully uh, manifested words, all of a sudden now my prayer has focus and direction when I wouldn't otherwise have focus or direction. And you're not praying alone. Right. You're joining a stream of prayer in history, right? You know, the river starts at its source and it keeps flowing. And wherever we are in that flow of history, we're joining that same stream of intercession, of prayer, of trust, of of uh, adoration. That's what we're doing when we when we pray. We're joining something that's already there and has been long before us and long after us. And that will be carried into eternity, you know, as we as we learn to worship God even more perfectly on the other side of this life. Um, that's what prayer is. So here's a question that I have for you specifically. Mm-hmm. You're sitting there, you're watching this with your with your family. Um, how did this beyond saying, wow, this is this is a wonderful example of evangelization, this is a wonderful example of prayer. We need to put this in the hands of other people. How did this affect you personally in that time? Well, sitting there watching it, I knew there was much more than you could just access in a single take, right? Mm-hmm. So I immediately went back and watched it a second time the day it was done, you know, um, but also began to contemplate, well, what is this? You know, identifying things. What chant is this? What, uh, what scripture is this? What psalm is this? Uh, why did they do this? What's really the history behind all this? And so I just did a lot of research, but every bit of research just unfolded like a flower. It was just very beautiful. You see the beauty of the faith, right? Mm -hmm. And when the world's a tough place, you lose sight of what's beautiful. Yeah. You might hang on to what's true, but you lose sight of what's beautiful and what's, uh, what can lead you deeper and and higher all at once, right? Uh, those things that edify, those things that elevate uh, human life uh, to the divine. And I, I think as I was putting this together and just kind of planning for this, uh, for me, it was just a, an extended, you know, couple of months long meditation on uh, what happened here, but not just what happened that day. What are the truths of our faith and the beauty of our faith that are accessible every day? Mm-hmm. What are the things that stir us, that that draw us upward? That uh, you know, what is the church giving the world? And the church really is here for blessing. Really is here for healing. Really is here for um, transcendence and for creating that bridge between you know everyday human life as it is and the mystery of God who is present to us at all times. So that's, for me, it was very much a drawing together, you know, the the tradition of the church in a way that um, hopefully makes it accessible and understandable, but also just draws that beauty um, for people, and as it did for me. You talked earlier about the, the, the possibility uh, that we don't often consider of suffering to be a vehicle for grace. Mm-hmm. And this is a concept that's, that's really 
well-developed in Catholic theology, this idea of redemptive suffering. Right. Um, here, what was interesting was to see uh, Pope Francis, I think, suffering not just on his own, but on behalf of others. We, we often think of redemptive suffering as in, well, I have something that I can offer up uh, in prayer for myself, or, or my suffering can be offered up for other people. But we don't often see, I think, people willingly taking on suffering for the sake of someone else. And, and some of that suffering was um, just emotional, the emotional mm-hmm. weight of all of it. But some of it was uh, he has sciatica and he chose, I'm still going to make these walks and these long uh, pilgrimages on foot and I'm going to lift up the monstrance and I'm going to do these things that are physically taxing for the sake of others. Um, right. And that really stood out to me uh, as as an invitation for all of us. What are the ways that we can bless others by taking on some of their sufferings? Exactly. You know, bear one another's burdens, thus fulfill the law of Christ, right? You know, that's that's what we do. We love one another when we bear one another's burdens. And taking on suffering is really living out the image of Christ, our servant and our savior. Um, and, you know, that's, he was certainly a model for that, that day. Um, but the church is a model for that. There's always, a, there's a place for us uh, to suffer and to suffer well and to suffer with meaning, right? That's, that's a difficult thing because, you know, of course, suffering, we all want to avoid it. It's the worst thing, right? Suffering is the worst thing. But the church in her wisdom and the, and the, the scriptures and in their wisdom tell us that there's, there are things that are worse than suffering, much worse than suffering. And, uh, and that suffering itself does not have to be devoid of meaning. It can have meaning. It can even contain grace. The book is Christ in the Storm, An Extraordinary Blessing for a Suffering World. Uh, it's available right now, Ave Maria Press. Go to AveMariaPress.com. Jamie, thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, absolutely. If you missed any part of my conversation with Jamie Stewart Wolf, or maybe you want to go back and listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And if you just can't get enough of this conversation, well, good news, there's more of it. Uh, There's 15 extra minutes of conversation available to all of those who support the show on Patreon. We've got a great Patreon support community who helps keep us on the air. And if that's something that interests you, you can learn more up in the top right-hand corner of our website, OutsideTheWalls.com. Up in that top right-hand corner, you'll see a link that says Support the Show. There you can learn more about how you can get access to all those extras as well. Now, let's turn our attention to our reading from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you study Scripture with the mind of the church to understand Scripture and tradition together. Learn more at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from today's Gospel. This is John 6 immediately before the bread of life discourse. So this is what happened right before Jesus said to them, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you, right? You know, that whole thing, John 6 is a big thing. But this happens, this is kind of the prelude to that event. And in some ways, this is a reflection of the uh, the homily from this, this urbi et orbi, right? Uh, in, 
in that, in that extraordinary blessing that Pope Francis gave, um, the gospel reading was of Jesus asleep in the boat, and there was a great big storm, and the disciples said, don't you care that we're perishing? And he rose up, and he rebuked the winds and the waves and said, peace be still. And the disciples were amazed. He said, why, why do you why were you afraid? Why did you have so little faith? So here we have uh, a similar event uh, that takes a little bit of a different turn on that. And we see this uh, in John 6, chapter, uh, verse 16. When it was evening, the disciples of Jesus went down to the sea, embarked in a boat, and went across the sea to Capernaum. It had already grown dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea was stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they began to be afraid. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. They wanted to take him into the boat, but the boat immediately arrived at the shore to which they were heading. That reading comes from the Gospel of John chapter 6. And remember that immediately after this happens is the big thing where Jesus tells them uh, what he's going to do in the Eucharist and how his presence is going to be brought to us in quite the controversial way. And so, as we look at this, we see a couple of things. One, here the disciples were in a storm. Uh, I don't know all the circumstances that went on before this, uh, what kinds of conversations that they had, but for whatever reason, they left Jesus behind, uh, and they they went on ahead on their own, and found themselves in a storm, working just really hard to make things work out, trying to stay afloat, trying to get where they were going, and uh, we get the sense in this reading that they weren't having a lot of luck, and then Jesus comes to them in a way that is frightening and unsettling. He walks to them on the sea, and they think it's a ghost. And he says, it's I. It is I. Don't be afraid. There, seeing Jesus, recognizing Jesus, he calls to them, and they're like, okay, well then, uh, we need you in here, right? We're in the middle of this storm. We need you to get in the boat. And before they have the opportunity to do it, they find themselves already in the place where they wanted to be. Already there without extra work. And and I think that this is something for us as well. We often think in the middle of our storm uh, that, that we have to do all the work to get us to the right shore. Jesus, I need you in my boat because this is hard work and I need to keep rowing because I need to get where I'm going. Well, in both of these stories, we see that, that Jesus is the primary actor, Right. In the story from the gospel where he's asleep in the boat, he's the one who rises up and calms the storm and says, peace be still. And the disciples wondered, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? Here they're in the middle of a storm. Jesus is not in the boat. And they're like, okay, um, we need you in the boat so that you can get in. Maybe, maybe, perhaps this is speculation. So that you can get in and calm the storm and then we can row the rest of the way. Here... They just end up, before he can even get in the boat, already at their destination. In each of these stories, Jesus subverts the disciples' expectations. In each of these stories, 
Jesus solves the issue, and not in the way that they expect. And this is, I think, what I take away from this today, that we find ourselves in the middle of storms, and it would be really easy for, for us to say, God, just take the storm away, right? Just uh, just make the storm disappear, make it easy and smooth sailing, and and into things that I can manage, but this isn't what he did for the disciples, right? Every time that he, both of these occasions, uh, when he, whether he calmed the waves, calmed the storm, or whether all of a sudden they found themselves at their destination, they were left absolutely amazed at the power of God. It wasn't just, oh, well, all of our problems went away, so now we can go back to life as normal. In both of these occasions, they, they were left at the end of the day marveling at the power of God. And I can't help but wonder if this happening immediately before the Bread of Life discourse helps Peter to say when Jesus turns and, and says to the disciples, will you leave me too? Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of life. And this, I think, is the proper place for us in the middle of our storm uh, to be, is to say, God, I want to be wherever you are. So, uh, um, St. Thomas Aquinas, his prayer at the end of his life was, uh, God said to him, you've done well, what, what would you have of me? And he says, nothing but you, Lord, nothing but you. And this, this, I think, is the key in the middle of our storms, not even to say, God, deliver me from this storm, but just to say, nothing but you. Our reading from Church History Today comes from a sermon by one of my favorites, absolute favorites, St. Peter Chrysologus. I appeal to you by the mercy of God. This appeal is made by Paul, or rather it is made by God through Paul, because of God's desire to be loved rather than feared to be a father rather than a Lord. God appeals to us in his mercy to avoid having to punish us in his severity. Listen to the Lord's appeal. In me, I want you to see your own body, your members, your heart, your bones, your blood. You may fear what is divine, but why not love what is human? You may run away from me as the Lord, but why not run to me as your father? Perhaps you are filled with shame for causing my bitter passion. Do not be afraid. This cross inflicts a mortal injury, not on me, but on death. These nails no longer pain me, but only deepen your love for me. I do not cry out because of these wounds, but through them I draw you into my heart. My body was stretched on the cross as a symbol, not of how much I suffered, but of my all-embracing love. I count it no loss to shed my blood. It is the price I have paid for your ransom. Come, then return to me, and learn to know me as your Father, who repays good for evil, love for injury, and boundless charity for piercing wounds. Listen now to what the Apostle urges us to do. I appeal to you, he says, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. By this exhortation of his, Paul has raised all men to priestly status. 
How marvelous is the priesthood of the Christian, for he is both the victim that is offered on his own behalf and the priest who makes the offering. He does not need to go beyond himself to seek what he is to immolate to God. With himself and in himself, he brings the sacrifice he is to offer to God for himself. The victim remains and the priest remains, always one and the same. Immolated, the victim still lives. The priest who immolates cannot kill. Truly, it is an amazing sacrifice in which a body is offered without being slain and blood is offered without being shed. The apostle says, I appeal to you by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Brethren, this sacrifice follows the pattern of Christ's sacrifice by which he gave his body as a living immolation for the life of the world. He really made his body a living sacrifice because though slain, he continues to live. In such a victim, death receives its ransom but the victim remains alive. Death itself suffers the punishment. This is why death for the martyrs is actually a birth and their end a beginning. Their execution is the door to life and those who were thought to have been blotted out from the earth shine brilliantly in heaven. Paul says, I appeal to you, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, living and holy. The prophet said the same thing, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but you have prepared a body for me. Each of us is called to be both a sacrifice to God and his priest. Do not forfeit what divine authority confers on you. Put on the garments of holiness Gird yourself with a belt of chastity. Let Christ be your helmet. Let the cross on your forehead be your unfailing protection. Your breastplate should be the knowledge of God that he himself has given you. Keep burning continually the sweet-smelling incense of prayer. Take up the sword of the Spirit and let your heart be an altar. Then with full confidence in God, present your body for sacrifice. God desires not death, but faith. God thirsts not for blood, but for self-surrender. God is appeased not by slaughter, but by the offering of your free will. That reading comes from a homily by St. Peter Chrysologus, and all of these stories end up in the same place. For us to turn to God and say to him, not my will, but yours be done. In that we find the fullness of of our offering to him. In that we find Christ in the middle of our storm and we find our storm at an end. Not that the troubles will go away, but that we say to him, your will be done. And he then delivers us. That's all the time we have for today. Today's show is brought to you by Phil and Tina Parker and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Learn more at OutsideTheWalls.com and click that Patreon link. Join us on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. Twitter the handles at outside the walls. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.